What's good, Podcastville? Thank you for 15 incredible seasons. Big shout out to Sound Reaper Graphics and Blue Canary Auto for five years of consistent support of the Bystander Podcast. I am your host, Tiny Tim, coming to you from beautiful Bainbridge Island, Washington, at some generic time in your day. I'm glad you're here. Please be a friend and tell a friend you heard it on The Bystander and follow us on social media. Now let's get the party started with some intro music from the incredible Leroy Bell. That's good, Podcastville. Thanks for joining the Bystander today. Hope you're all doing well. Everybody's healthy and happy. Today, my guest has 100 acres in Doyle Bay, Alaska of Mariculture and Kelp, and now oysters as well. Give it up for a return visit for Marcos Shear. Here's where I'd play applause if I had applause. How you doing, Marcos? I'm doing great. Thanks very much for uh, having me on again. And uh uh, and, uh, you know, lots happened in the last, uh, three or four years. So, uh, you know, we've got, we got a fair amount to catch up on. It's actually 127 acres, this first site. So uh, look at you growing. I know. Well, and, uh, so hundred acres is, uh, uh, allocated for seaweed, uh, cultivation and, uh, two and the other 27 is allocated for shellfish production. Now is, uh, Doyle Bay in Ketchikan or how? So, close to it? Or? Well, it's about 50 miles west. So Ketchikan is on a uh, on an island called Revilla Gigedo. Uh, Revilla Gigedo, I think it's. Excuse me? Uh, Revilla Gigedo <laughs> uh, Island. And, uh, and then uh, um, Doyle Bay is on the west side of Prince of Wales Island, which is uh, the fourth largest island in the United States. Um, I'm glad I grabbed you and ran into <coughs> you on Bainbridge Island because uh, you're not here as often as you used to be. You're a dual island citizen. Well, wherever I am, I'm on an island. Yes, which isn't bad. No, no, it's a, it's the it's it's great. So Ketchikan, you know, we, we Ketchikan. Uh, I think that I'm not sure when we talked the last time. I don't know that we had an operation uh, in Ketchikan going yet, and I don't think we had produced our first uh, uh, our first uh, crop of uh, of uh, kelp. Yeah, tell me. I was super excited last time and I had a million questions and I think I have a million more today. What goes into <clears throat> processing kelp uh, and how often do you process it? So the way the, the seasonality of kelp is uh, we, we will take our, the, we'll take our reproductive material out of wild stocks in August typically. And the way that works is you take the sorus uh, material you uh, clean it up. You take it to the lab where it's uh, um, where you stress it out. 
and then it uh, it then it will when you stress it it'll release into the the water so we use a filtered seawater solution that it that it would uh, it'll release into and there'll be billions and billions of little um kelp spore which are you know they're like a it's egg like right yeah, they're microscopic and they have a little flagellum and they swim around in the water and you can count them and and uh, and then we take that um, that that material and you dilute it to you so you get the right density. How many how many million spore per you know per unit? And we introduce that to uh, another tank that's got filtered seawater solution in it. And in that tank, we use a three inch piece of PVC with a number fifteen Saint twine wrapped around it. Those, uh, we use, this is the inoculation tank. So what'll happen is those, those little spore will swim around in the water until they find that artificial substrate, which is the, um, uh, the, the string, the seed string, and they'll burrow into it. And then we take those, we let them sit there for, for about a day, uh, day and a half in this uh, confined area and then we take those spools out and we put them in we have these racks of acrylic tanks that have lights and circulation systems on it and we can we can add nutrients to them and then we control the environment temperature light and nutrients to uh, uh until these spore become gametophytes then these gametophytes there's a male and female gametophyte will will uh, release a sperm and an egg and those will get together on the same substrate and become a sporophyte, which is the juvenile uh, kelp plant. In, the, in this process, are you playing Barry White music? Uh, I, I'm not, but uh, uh, we've got two two really terrific people, uh, uh, Chunk Kelly and Brian Frazier in the nursery, and they are, you know, um, and, uh, Chunk is got. He used to he used to be a roadie for a for a punk band mm. uh, for about twenty years. So he's uh, yeah. So it may not be Barry White being played in there, but <laughs> but there's some music going on. Now, uh, I, sorry to interject, but does the spore have have to connect to something? Yeah. So the artificial substrate, that string that's wrapped around those two, those uh, uh, those uh, three inch PVC, that's the substrate. So that's the artificial substrate that all of this cultivation. And then over the course of the next four to six weeks, that that the, the those sporophytes will grow to a point that they're ready to go out to the farm. And this will usually happen in October and November. So you take those spools out in a tote full of seawater, take them out to the farm, and then the the way that they're cultivated is we have these parallel uh, the farm itself is about a half a mile long, and it's in that hundred acre. Uh, there's a hundred acre um, site for it, and uh, there are thirty six mooring buoys that are anchored to the bottom, and off of those mooring buoys we have parallel line of uh, floating uh, lines we call catenaries. They go between the buoys, and then these and then these. Um, these spools, we call them, uh, spools of, uh, of, uh, substrate, uh, will, you, will take a piece of three eighths line, you go through those spools, you tie off, and then that, it, those, that substrate, that line that's wound around that, as we back the boat off, will spin, will spin off and onto the, onto the grow line. Mm-hmm. So then what you'll have at the end is you'll have this, uh, this tight piece of, uh, grow out. We call it grow line. It's a three eighths, uh, uh, nylon line that's in the water that has the seed string with these with these juveniles. So you wrap it around like a candy cane. Yeah, wrapped around like a candy cane, and uh, uh, and then uh, you suspend that in the water column about three meters below the surface. We have weights and buoys that uh, accommodate that and keep tension in the system uh, so that so that you have uh, that it's even 
uh, evenly suspended across the span. So your rows in your nursery have to be much like a graph, I would think, mathematically, because doesn't kelp grow a foot and a half per week or day there, or something like that? There, there are some kelps that grow. You know, Mariocystis bull kelp primarily can grow uh, up to a foot a day. Uh, these don't quite grow. Uh, we grow. We grow primarily blade kelp right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have, we cultivated two species this year: uh, Saccharina latissima, which is sugar kelp, and Elaria uh, uh, marginata, which is a ribbon kelp. Okay, tell me the difference between ribbon, sugar, and bull kelps. So uh, r- ribbon and sugar are they are uh, uh, blade kelps. So they're just uh, so where they the hold fast attaches to the grow line as they grow out, and they're just kind of a flat blade that uh, mm-hmm. that goes out. A bull kelp is the ones that you see on the shoreline all the way along the west coast, and they have a big a softball, too. big softball, the buoyant uh, um, buoyant part of them, and then the blades coming off of that, and they're anchored to the bottom. And it's kind of like the pencil with the yeah that the, you rubbed, and the hair the, went crazy. But there's blades of kelp yeah, but coming out of the ball. They're buoyant kelp, so they yeah. have their own buoyancy yeah. in them. And so when we Surface. tried to grow them, we had to counteract that buoyancy to keep them under the water. Um, Why? Because they would overlap other no, lines of kelp? No, because if they go to the surface and uh, they're in the air all the time, um, it's it's not the it, it's not healthy for them. They can freeze and die, or the air can, or they get sunburnt. Um, you know, in the wild, they would be fixed to the bottom, and then the tide would rise and fall around them. So there, during periods of time, they would be at the surface, but the rest of the time, they would be underwater. Uh, in our system, because it's suspended all the time, and you're always in the same level of the water column, um, you have to you have to continue to sink them as they grow to make encounter that buoyancy, so they mm-hmm. don't. Uh, uh, we grew a lot of bull kelp for two years, and we but we're not growing at the moment until we find a better system. Yeah, back to the processing part of it. I would think with it growing so fast like that, and you have. Would you say three yards or three feet off the bottom, and you had to keep bringing it down? That you would have to process kelp pretty regularly. Well, we only do one harvest a year, so you know that. Uh, How does so, that work? So we'll plant. Uh, we plant that in October and November, and you really start to see growth starting in uh, late January. That um, when the you know when the, the daylights the daytime start to begin get longer uh then you'll start to see growth the biggest period of growth is really in march and april and uh, that's where you may get up you know may get up to a meter a week and is that due growth. to longer daylight longer daylight that's the that's the biggest trigger for it and also nutrient availability and things like that so uh, we'll get that uh, longer term it'll go uh, um uh, and then uh uh, by late April and May, we're ready to harvest. We want to harvest before the summer season, before they start getting fouling. So we'll uh, we'll likely start harvesting next week. Uh, and harvesting as we'll go along, and you you cut them off of the uh, of these grow lines. This year, we put about one hundred and seventy thousand feet of of seed line in the water. That's kind of a standard. That so they- you leave. Kind of like a stem on that grow line, or will you take everything off the grow line and start over? We'll take everything off and start over, and uh, so we'll the harvest will be about three weeks, and we'll uh, uh, we'll probably harvest maybe uh, two hundred tons of product. Probably harvest two hundred tons of product this year. So, do you immediately freeze that stuff, or do you go through some process of washing and cleaning, or how, what's the rest of the process? Uh, it really. Like? De- 
it depends on the customer and what their use is. If, uh, you know, we've had customers that are in the commercial fertilizer side and they just, uh, will take, uh, those customers would take it, uh, ground right off the farm, you know, we take it into the plant, grind it, freeze it in blocks and ship it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will typically, if it's going for a food grade, we, uh, uh there is a system of, uh, rinsing the blades before uh, they go into a dewatering and then to an inspection line before they will be packed either high, uh, whole or ground, depending on what the customer specifications are. Now, do you dehydrate any kelp? kelp? We don't currently dehydrate any, um, That's but, an option. uh, but that is the, that is the most common form of, uh, of kelp usage in the marketplace. And, uh, and the reason we don't is we don't have material drying capacity in Alaska just yet. Uh, but we expect to have, uh, that drying capacity in Alaska by uh, next, uh, by the time we harvest in 2024. Now, people want to use this as, as a fertilizer, mostly because it's nutrient dense, correct? That's correct. I was uh, searching some of the products because last time we talked, I think we were talking about like stuffed cabbage type kelp recipes and of course chowder. And it hadn't got to the extent it is now. I think we were talking about uh, pharmaceuticals being supplements and stuff held together through kelp. But I was like, coleslaw kelp, kelp burger, kelp chowder, kelp pickles, which I don't understand, but I want to get back to that, Um, kelp chili crisps, kelp cubes, kelp shoes, kelp dog supplements, kelp salsa. Of course, skin products are all the rage with the kelp fertilizer, like we said. And like for people that have thyroid conditions that need more iodine, uh, kelp is rich with iodine, correct? It it really is. You know, it is uh, – there's some seasonal and species variation in uh, what nutrients available, but they are uh, – kelps are – it's an algae. It's a macroalgae, and it is – they are just remarkably um, full of nutrients. Uh, you know, say, for example, ribbon kelp, which we sell a fresh frozen um, variety that's available, and it's available here on the island, and, um, and it's a uh, – uh, you know, it's got potassium and calcium and iron and, uh, vitamin B12. It's one of the, one of the only sources of non-meat sources for vitamin B12. So if, it, you know, if you, if, uh, uh, consumers are vegans and are looking for a way to, uh, access vitamin B12 without a, without a meat-based supplement, supplement, that's a way to, uh, way to do it. Um, there's... Vitamin B12, is that iron related? No, iron's separate. Um, yeah. And, uh, and there's also iron and ash and, uh, in, ash. in the ash. What is and, ash? Um, you know, that's good. That's a good question. I, I don't know that I know the technical definition like I've never of gone to a campfire, picked up the ash and ate it later. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, for some, you know, ash is particularly important for, uh, certain, um, pet food supplements. It's a necessary, uh, dietary inclusion and, um, so iodine is another one for, you know, for folks with, uh, thyroid, uh, challenges that can be a, a natural way to, uh, supplement. B12, it's a, gives you energy, correct? That's right. Well, B12 is an essential nutrient that, uh, uh, that we all utilize. And normally we would get it through protein, protein sources. 
but uh, uh, so for vegans, they need to find other. Uh, you will typically find other sources for it, or they'll take supplements which are which are derivative of of meat sources. Um, but uh, uh, algae can can also provide the same benefit. Um, a couple of episodes ago, I had uh, Bill Marler in here. Apparently, you know him as well. I, I and, do know uh, Bill. You brought up algae, and I used to drink this algae drink like crazy, um, and it was scraped off some pools in Oregon and stuff like that. But it was an Odwalla product, and he uh, kind of took Odwalla out of business. Uh, it was kind of ironic that the three of us are in this little triangle of – of food that's and that's a different algae you know those are microalgae that's a different uh, a different substance um, or a different different form of uh, algae uh, but there are lots of uh, derivatives of algae uh, why is algae good for us to well eat, drink well you know there's a there's a book called slime which i i think that you know, you, you probably ought to read it. Uh, it's a really interesting book and it kind of talks about the history and usage of algae in, uh, in the past and currently. And, uh, there's some evidence, uh, that, uh, um, early humans that, uh, that included algae in their diet. Their brains advanced faster than those that did not. Um, there is a, uh, you know, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, a, uh, uh, some material evidence that algaes were the first life on Earth, and uh, that they are the precursor to everything else. That uh, back in the primordial, that proverbial primordial slime was a was an algae. Uh, I wonder who's to, the first person that sticks their finger in the algae and, and licks it and says, "Yeah, it's good. I feel smarter." Yeah, yeah why? Well, I, I it, I'm the it, guy that eats the poisonous mushroom. Yeah, that's right. Well, no, algae's. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, we've been eating components from uh, algae and macroalgae in our diet for, you know, our entire lives. You may not be aware of it, but uh, you know, things like carrageenan. And alginates mm. are derivatives yeah. of seaweed, of seaweed, of uh, macroalgae that would be used in a variety of foods like ranch dressing and ice cream and Velveeta cheese as a natural emulsifier. They Nothing also, natural about Velveeta cheese. Well, they had, well, the <laughs> carrageenan is natural. Everything else may not be, but yeah, the uh, rest is plastics. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, so there are a variety of different uses that, uh, you know, that we've been, We've been using them and just didn't know about it. The global production of seaweeds about thirty-five million tons a year. Wow! There's more. There's more. What are you expecting to harvest this? Uh, oh, maybe two hundred tons. And where are you going to put that? Yeah, we're going to uh, we're going to freeze it primarily, and uh, you know, in a, in some form or another. That's the that's the plan anyway. Okay. So right now you're kind of in a wholesale situation to give kelp to these products like kelp pickles. Tell me both that your whole your wholesaling ideas and what a kelp pickle is. Yeah, uh, well, most most of the buyers of the of the, the products that we do are doing derivatives or using it as an inclusion in something else. Mm. Uh, so we don't we won't see the finished product until it reaches its uh, uh, market. Um, the uh, kelp pickle is really um, focused on bull kelp, and they use the stipe portion of it. To slice shout to the ball, yeah, yeah, and they slice it up, and then they just make a regular pickle uh, pickle mix and use it. And it's uh, I don't know if you ever had watermelon pickles and things like that. You make pickles from lots of things other than 
uh, you know, you can have pickled green beans and pickled, mm-hmm. um, you know. Other than kimchi, I'm just straight pickles. Yeah, well, you can have pickled uh, cauliflower and different. I mean, there's a lot of different ways yeah. that you can you can pickle and use it as you know um, pickled onions. You use in cocktails and things like that. So yeah, it's the same. Burgers. Yeah, it's the same process, just a different. Uh, you know, you just it's a different product. vegetable. Gotcha. I'm gonna have to try those with you for sure. Um, I, w- I will say that a uh, uh, a kelp pickled dirty martini is pretty solid. <laughs> okay, where can we get that? No, well, I just need some pickled, uh, yeah, some pickled kelp. I, I've actually got some in my fridge at home. All right. We're going to have to cut this short and go get some. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get, get a two martini lunch. like a, Yes, know. or four. Yeah. Um, t- tell me um, exactly where you get all the seeds for the kelp. So the way the, the way the law works in Alaska, we can only cultivate local indigenous species so we can't bring kelp from another country or another place in and cultivate it there and in fact to maintain their uh, genetic diversity which is you know we want to do we want to be the responsible participant uh, you have to you have to take your seed stock from wild stocks within found within 50 kilometers by water of your farm site so that if there are distinctly different uh, genetic populations among the same species yeah exactly so you know so we go out and we collect uh they become typically become reproductive over the summer and you will go to beds of wild kelp and you'll take the reproductive portions and and uh, collect them what's Uh, that process look like uh, you can either snorkel or scuba dive for it and collect it and put it in bags and take it up on the on the boat it's remarkable. It is so potent. I think that we've we probably cultivate our entire farm, which I believe is the largest single site cultivation for macroalgae in uh, in the country. Uh, I'm pretty sure of that. And uh, um, and all of that reproductive material will be less than a you know maybe half a five gallon bucket worth of material. So wow. it's, so it's not it's not very much. There's so there you know and that'll that'll result in billions and billions and billions of uh of uh score of, of, of little of spore. Not all of them turn into sporophytes, but uh, but that's the that's the building block. I've got a car a Carl Sagan thing going on in my head. Billions and billions <laughs> and billions. Uh, somehow there Carl Sagan's in the back of my head talking to me. I just want to call somebody a sporified. <laughs> That's sporified. Yeah, spore. spore. Uh, yeah, it's spore. And uh, and then there's so there's three stages of macroalgae. Now these macroalgae are spore, gametophyte, and sporophyte. Uh, I'll take entertainment for a hundred, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hate to play you in Scrabble. Those are um, some tough words for me to spell. Hey, um, tell me about this project that you got going with uh, Hump Island Oysters and how that came across. And now you're in the oyster biz, kind of, sort of. Well, no, we're we're getting in the oyster biz. So we've been doing. Uh, so uh, Hump Island is a, an oyster farm out of Ketchikan, and uh, it's not Jeffrey Epstein's other island. It is not. And uh, in uh, Hump Island is a uh, uh, the family that owns it uh, uh, is a friend of mine, and I've known uh, his mother was my, my apologies, my English teacher in high school, and we went to high school together. 
Anyway, so he's got this business where they're growing oysters. And so in last year, we, we brokered some of the oysters from his farm to move them into the marketplace. And we have a, uh, a pretty, pretty close relationship. And we're going to, we're going to, uh, work on, uh, work with them in the coming years as the plan. And what's the relationship directly between oysters and kelp? Are they, beneficial like you know strawberries and tomatoes plant them together yeah so they are they are very beneficial uh you know they have you know there's some halo benefits you know things like uh um there are the uh, uh the oyster uh what they uh, what they let off can you know in, including uh uric acid can be uh used as uh, nutrients for the kelp and then the kelp they call it the detritus where particles of the kelp as it's growing fall off into the water column are food for the oysters. So between the two of them, there is a mutually beneficial relationship by cultivating them both in the same location. There's a, you know, and there's a, you know, it is, you know, it is, uh, what's that look like at your place? So, uh, so just, so the hump Island operation, that's just our collaboration with another company. Mm-hmm. We're also in the process of building our own oyster farming operation in, uh, uh, in uh, Doyle Bay, and that's a that's a separate uh, separate operation. So what we'll be doing is building. Uh, we're going to put uh, a highly efficient um, oyster cultivation system in there. Uh, the goal here is to, and it's a surface growing system. So all of our oysters are going to be suspended culture, and they'll be cultured on the uh, on the top of the water column, where the temperature is the warmest and the feed availability is the highest. And uh, we're using a system that's uh, that was designed and, and built out of the eastern Canada. Uh, Does that to, involve bags? Or? Yeah. Well, there there are bags in uh, they they call them cages, but really it's a uh, it's a system that uh, and the cages on a little catamaran. It's a little they've got little plastic floats that, uh, and so when they're in the feeding phase, the 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 bags are under the surface and the floats are on top. And the floats just go back and forth and yeah. and uh, aquify filtration type process. Well, no, they're all on a, they're on a line. The floats are just there to float the system. Okay. And, uh, they, you know, that's their function. So when they're, when they're in the feeding stage, the, the bags and the oysters are down in the water and the floats are on top, holding it at that, uh, point in the area. water column. Yeah. Right. And they're on these long lines. There are 30 of, 30 of them per row. We'll have a couple thousand of them in the farm when we're done. Uh, and those will house, uh, you know, three to four million oysters in, in, in the farm. And then once a week, you take those and you flip them up so that the oysters are out of the water for a day. And then that allows the air and the UV to, uh, uh, to kill all the biofouling uh, on the oysters. Ah. So on the, and on the cages. So we don't have to spend, uh, so much time trying to maintain the oysters. Uh, you know, I, I bet you up. there's a better filtration being suspended too. Yeah. Well, I think the filtration is the same. You just want to make, you want to make sure that there's lots of opportunity for that, um, for that, uh, phytoplankton to get in through, through into the oysters so that they can eat. Yeah. And oysters are, uh, incredibly effective filters. So an an adult oyster will filter 50 gallons of seawater a day. So if you put, you know, millions of them in a, uh, in an area, they, they will, uh, they will filter it and clean it. And, and in fact, there's a, there's a project on the East coast called the billion oyster project. Yeah. Yeah. I hey, follow yeah. them. And, yeah. uh, Puget Sound restoration fund was talking about, um, how they're importing the, the coexistence to make, 
regrow kelp beds. Yeah, they'd be up. And I think that's really, really important. It cleans the water. It also, you know, provides, you know, you can use it to, uh, to do, uh, rehabilitation and, uh, uh, in areas. And if you, you know, it'd be interesting to see when, uh, Puget Sound Restoration gets that project fully, uh, realized how effective so, the, me, the me, oysters and kelp are going to be in, in really rehabilitation of, uh, of those areas. I'm really excited for them. They were on a couple of weeks ago and, uh, they had an operating budget budget that was between two and four million dollars, and they just got a grant uh, following the podcast for twelve or fourteen million now. Oh, excellent! So they're going to make some strides, and I'm yeah. super excited for them and proud of them, and happy for them. Yeah, they've got a they've got a great uh, great team. I you know I know I've known a couple of them for a number of years. And they really, have a great team too. Yeah. You know? How how did you come across some of the people that are working on you, with your team? Well, it, it really depends. Some of them are uh, folks that, uh, did, that we put a job posting out and they applied. Some of them are, uh, folks that, uh, we've known for many years and they, uh, they came to work for us. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's been, you know, depend, it, it's highly variable, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, and I've known some of them for 30 years and I've known some of them for, one and a days, but yeah. really great, great team. The Craig team is uh, you know, doing the oysters and seaweed farming out there. That cultivation project, really great people. We've been really fortunate with the. Uh, yeah, your with, team seems passionate. Yeah, they're, that's going to take you a long they, way. They're great, and they, you know, I mean, what we're trying to do is, is really, it's good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to build a. Uh, be part of building an industry that is non-extraction based, um, you know, uh, sustainable. It's local. It supports these local communities where, you know, other economic t- uh, activities can be challenging to find. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been based on, uh, uh, you know, primarily on seafood and timber for, you know, say the last 50 to 100 years. And, uh, this represents a very different change and uh, and there's a lot of support in alaska for it uh actually we've been really successful as an industry at uh you know at both um, being able to uh get real positive support from both the state and federal um uh, folks and uh, and the legislature and local communities uh we uh, last september a coalition uh, called the Alaska Mariculture Coalition. We were able to secure a $50 million, uh, grant under the Build Back Better Challenge opportunity. One of only 21 coalitions in the country that were awarded those, uh, funds from that, uh, from that project. So we're really excited about that. We're just onboarding that. Uh, that'll be, uh, uh those, those funds start, will start flowing this year. And, uh, that's intended to, uh, build really every aspect of the industry from workforce training to revolving loans, equipment to help uh, uh, scale up the industry in efficient ways like drying technology uh, to allow us to dehydrate seaweed, uh, shipping and, uh, and other technologies to, uh, um, uh, to help advance the shellfish side, market and market development uh, uh, funds. Uh, you know, it is it is a remarkable opportunity for the next four years for us to to take this industry and, and make it into something special and sustainable. I had a couple of questions that come to mind. Mariculture versus aquaculture. What's the difference? Mariculture really means just uh, cultivating in the sea. 
and uh, aquaculture uh, the, just being water. Uh, aquaculture can be uh, can be fresh or or seawater, uh, either or. Uh, aquaculture, um, you know, it is aquaculture, but but we're doing it in the ocean, and so we call it, in Alaska we call it mariculture. How does other biodiversity interact with your underwater nursery? Well, um, you know, there's a lot, there's, there's a fair amount of effort going in to try to understand what that, uh, you know, what the interactions are between, uh, cultivating shellfish and, uh, and seaweed in the environment. Um, you know, we notice there's a lot more, uh, fish around, uh, you know, uh, you know, the seaweed is a habitat. It's a protective layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see wild seaweed forests, you'll find just, you know, thousands of species that, that live in and among them, uh, and feed on them and uh, rely on that as kind of their, um, their, their place, uh, for, you know, and so because we're growing local seaweeds, not just local, we're, it's hyper local. I mean, we grow, we, mm-hmm. we grow the same family in the same area. Um, the way the rules are in Alaska are very much protective of the environment and we, and we really support that. So, uh, as well. So unless you're the willow pipeline, uh, the meaning that when we're cultivating them, we're cultivating local species, but you can't use a, an, a, a mariculture operation can't displace a wild population. So that is a, you know, so we are additive, not, uh, uh, not subtractive, but and, and mariculture can also mean other things like rehabilitation, uh, fish pens. Are, uh, no, not fish pens. We, the one, the one thing that is it, it is expressly illegal in Alaska is to cultivate anything with a fin. So no fish farming. You were the one that told me that about ninety percent of the fish I eat is farm raised at restaurants. Well, I would say that's uh, it. May be higher than that, frankly. Um, it's crazy that it's not disclaimed on the menu well think about it you know you know a hundred percent of uh, all of the other meats that you that you eat are are farmed you know chicken and beef and pork and and you know turkey and everything else that's in the that's in the on the protein side of the plate is is cultivated our, you know, and our plants too. And shellfish right? too, and plants too. You know, we're, we're, the difference is we're doing, you know, we're cultivating indigenous species and, and, uh, and in a way that it doesn't require any inputs. So when we put those in the ocean, you know, we don't fertilize them. We don't fertilize them. We don't uh, use pesticides. Anything. That's natural habitat it, you can have. It is naturally grown. It is as, it is natural as you can possibly find. The only difference is that we have positive control over what we put in the water and where we, where we put it. Um, so the water makes the difference. And I think from, for us, uh, you know, Alaska's waters are so clean and so pristine. Um, that it really creates remarkable products that we can, that we can really feel good about that, you know, if you want to, uh, it's so important for so many folks that they want to know where their stuff comes from. Yeah. I want that Copper River salmon right now. Uh, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you know, or you you know, or, uh, or you have these, uh, uh, these, uh, uh, delivery, uh, cooperatives that are, you know, you get your, you get your box of, uh, vegetables, vegetables every yeah. week. CSAs. Uh, CSAs. Yeah. That's, uh, um, because they want to know that that where their product, where it's coming from, and who's yeah. doing it, and what and the story is, and make sure that organic. they're organic. Absolutely, and we, you know, and we are certified organic as well. 
And uh, yeah, because I think that story is such an important part of how we make food choices in our lives, and this uh, and the fact that we can, you know, we can track the uh, what we do. You can you can go all the way back to the farm. In fact, I mean, you could go to the farm and know where it comes from. And I think that's a really important, and will and is increasingly important for uh, for consumers around around the world and around the country. Yeah, what I've learned, or I don't know if I've learned. <laughs> what I'm learning about the supply chain is it's important to me to know where things are sourced now. It's not mindless eating. I want den- dense, nutrient-rich foods. I want it organic. I don't want to, you know, contribute to another plastic bottle. You know, I get, I get Voss water. It still has a plastic top, but it's glass, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I feel better about that. Just making small choices until it goes away. There was a recent article this week about the plastic ecosystem and how horrible it was and 10 miles or something of plastic garbage that it just connected and there's a whole new ecosystem in it. It's just it's I horrific. Think I, I think I read the same article. Yeah. But you know, it's dead news the next day. Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of, uh, you know, part of the transition that we've seen for some of us that, you know, have been around since the sixties and seventies. Uh, shh, shh. Well, not you, of course, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, uh, only speaking for myself, you know, I, I, you can see over that course of that time that these incremental changes broadly make a big difference. I remember the smog warnings in the seventies and, you know, the challenges of doing that. And, and well, no, yeah, well, no single effort is likely to change the trajectory. It's the collection of people trying to do the right things that make that, make that change. And I think that's really important to recognize, you know. Um, you know, add, they, add up the little things. Add the little things. You know, it's the make a huge difference in the in the ultimate outcome. So the trend line, I think, is really good and positive across the, around the world. Do we have things we still need to do? Absolutely. And uh, and frankly, you know, I think what we're doing in Alaska represents a really unique opportunity to um, to produce. You know, we can produce food, super nutritious food, at with a much lower uh, carbon footprint than land-based agriculture. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. and there's no, you know, like, like I said, no pesticides, no fertilizers. There's no, no massive predator either. They're, they're not adding anything to, you know, the ocean grows it and the ocean is nothing. There's no, you know, the, the ocean makes up 70% of the planet and nothing grows things better than the ocean. I think there's a claim on your website about um, no bad seasons for oysters. What does that actually mean? Well, I don't know. Bad season is there. Uh, you're it, trying to avoid a bad season. What does a bad season look like? Well, see, uh, oysters. Uh, you know, the one challenge that we have in warmer climates for oysters is during the summer months, uh, two things happen. It's too um, warm. They get warm. They become reproductive, and uh, so then you get milky oysters. They're not bad. Um, you know, they're not inedible and, uh, they're just not the same experience and not positive, which is why many times they don't, uh, you know, the, those that are subject to that are not selling oysters during those months where they have milky oysters. You can avoid that through triploids, which is a, a hybrid oyster that doesn't, that doesn't reproduce. So that's not, that's one mechanism. Alaska is so, the water is cold enough that, uh, they don't reproduce. So they don't go into their natural reproductive cycle, even diploids don't. So, um, so even though Pacific oysters, which is the dominant form of oysters and on the West Coast, uh, and they originally are from Japan, um, don't reproduce in Alaska. 
So we're allowed to cultivate them, but we've got to find our, we've got to produce our own seed. You're not going to collect that wild. Mm, very interesting. You seem to have made some good relationships with other other businesses. If I'd like, to, if I could, I'd just give a couple shout outs to those businesses that are doing business with you: Barnacle Foods, Forge and Found, Sea Soak Skin, Pacific Northwest Organics, and Daybreak Seaweed. How hard is it for you? Which I kind of know the answer to this because you could sell ice to Eskimo probably. Um, making these relationships sustainable and have longevity with these relationships. Well, I think that's really important. And you, know, you left out a couple of local in Bainbridge Island. Uh, you know, we, we have our seaweed at uh, the Seabird uh, and it's also available at, uh, uh, at town, town and country, town yeah. and country. You can buy frozen ribbon kelp, which is functionally is, and it's also at Pike place fish. Uh, so you can, and, you know, you take that and you can blanch it and use it in salads and soups and uh, breads. And actually, mm-hmm. we had a series of classes here at the barn early in the year yep. where we did kelp cooking classes. And they were very well attended. It was terrific. A local chef, uh, uh, Eric. Uh, Eric, was uh, involved. He was he made all those recipes himself. They were tremendous. One of my favorite was this baked squash Um um, uh, recipe. It had squash and, and cheeses and, and, uh, and, uh, ribbon kelp in it. And it was just, um, just amazing. We did little kelp, kelp crisps and all kinds of the re- kelp re- cabbage rolls with shrimp in them. Yeah. Those look yeah, good. Yeah. They were good. Everything was great. And, you know, and I think what that, yeah, you know, the, the, the idea of doing that was to, you know, let people work with kelp. And, you know, learn that it's, it's a really easy functional vegetable, heavy green, like a spinach that mm-hmm. you can use in almost any application in, uh, that you can use those at and then some. And it's super nutritious. It's easy. Um, and you know, that it's a very mild flavor, great textured. We use it in breads and scones. Hillary makes it. Yeah. I heard, uh, there's kelp bread kind of rustic. Yeah. And that's just dr- dehydrating it and flaking it yep. within the flour and such. And, and then putting it in with the flour. Um, the, you know, Hillary makes this really amazing, uh, ribbon kelp and, uh, um, uh, um, um, no, I'm drawing a blank on, uh, quiche. She makes mm. this great quiche with mushrooms. It goes real. Uh, kelp goes really good with mushrooms. Very complimentary. Um, uh, we've, I've even put it in homemade ice cream, and it's it's really it's really neat because it's got a little salty, a little texture. Um, you know, it's really it's really delicious. Hillary or the kelp? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the kelp. You don't have to answer that. Um, um, how do you, how do you feel it ranks up there, close to a superfood in your mind? I think it is. It, well, I don't think there's any question that it's superfood. And, uh, and I think that's a, you know, with its broad nutritional profile, if you put it, if you put uh, ribbon kelp, for example, up against kale and spinach, mm-hmm. the nutritional profile blows the doors off of them. It's just so much broader in, in scope and depth and its nutritional profile than those two products. And, um, and as I learned from Bill Marler, spinach and kelp are, one of those dirty dozen type foods with uh, pesticides and susceptible to um, E. coli and what is it, listeria? Um, well, you, not you're talking about uh, uh, spinach and kale. You're not talking. You said kelp. Yeah, oh, my, my apologies. Yeah, 
Uh, kelp does not have that issue. It does not have that issue, uh, particularly kelp grown in Alaska, because where we grow our, where we cultivate our uh, kelp in Doyle Bay, there is no, there are no humans in in that bay. Um, you know, there's no human activity. Uh, you know, you may have boats going by and and that. So, um, you know, whereas farm-based production, land-based production is very different in 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 so many respects. So, you know, we're we really do think that what we're doing is a uh, is a uh, a really distinct change from you know kind of the the typical farm raised product, and I I think it's a lifetime of love for you too. You're a maritime lawyer for a long time, and you've seen the environment, and you wanted to make a difference, and you're making a difference in a, in a positive way with a big splash. Yeah, we're trying to we're trying to do our part, and I'm also heavily involved in the Alaskan uh, uh, efforts to, to build and diversify the industry. Uh, spent uh, you know countless hours as part of uh, boards and groups to help to catalyze the industry and get it to a place where where it's sustainable and uh, and significant. Um, and we're you know we've been really successful, and I think that you know the next four or five years you're going to see a remarkably diverse industry uh, uh, be created. Yeah, will be created in Alaska. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your future plans and where you're going. Before we got on air, I had to stop you about your trip to South Korea. Um, tell me what you've been doing on big levels with meetings like that and where you see your business going in the next year. Well, I think that we'll start with the uh, the uh, the trip to South Korea, uh, and that is a, a trip that was funded by the World Wildlife Fund as a knowledge exchange, and there were uh, key personnel from uh, the Western uh, uh, seaweed industry, uh, which included uh, pharaohs, um, uh, the East Coast. Uh, uh, West Coast, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, uh, person, people, really terrific people that are on the cutting edge of how to, how are we are to build that, uh, the Western seaweed industry. Uh, and so in December, we went to the Denmark and the Faroes and this, uh, uh, and then the first week of April, we went to South Korea and spent a week touring and meeting with their seaweed industry in uh, South Korea. And they are the Koreans. Uh, really are the cutting edge of, uh, of technology and product development. Um, they, you know, the, the total production of seaweed from South Korea is somewhere between, uh, 1.5 to 2 million tons a year, which is a huge amount. Now it's a variety of species. Uh, it's not all just one and it's not all macroalgae. Uh, there are other seaweeds like, uh, Gracilaria that they produce in some volume that they use in salads and other things. Um, the uh, uh then a big part of their production is the uh, pyropia which they use for making the seaweed snacks and the nori that mm. you would you would have my, with your sushi yeah my kid eats that hand over fist in the car oh, they they're exporting so much uh they uh, you know it is it is a really significant monetarily that side of the business is the most uh is the most profitable and the largest revenue producer for uh, the korean seaweed industry we used to get cases at Costco, and it's always sold out now. Oh yeah, they they can't ship enough out. You know, and frankly, I suspect that's why they're interested in developing relationships with uh, outside because uh, the South Korean industry is seeing three things that are that are challenging for them, and they're very much looking long term. Uh, one is that they're having a harder time finding um, uh, the 
Distribution? They, they have a grow. They have a graying industry, and uh, so the the what does old that mean? well it means that the the people that are farming the kelp are getting older, and the kids aren't coming up and wanting to go farm kelp. They want to go do something else, so they're not as able to find labor, and so they're importing labor from in, Indonesia and various places. That's one challenge. The other challenge, another challenge, is that uh, they are producing as much as they can, which means that. Uh, there isn't new area for them to cultivate. They already, you know, for a fairly small, geographically small country, they, they are hitting way above their weight class and productivity and total production of, uh, of seaweeds. So, you know, there's, they're capped out. And then, uh, uh, and last, if they want to continue to grow, they're going to need to find new sources of raw material and new markets to, uh, to develop that. What we've, the takeaways that I took from, uh, from the biggest ones are, they spend a lot of money on seed selection and, uh, you know, and growing, um, it not, it's not GMO. It means that, it means that they, um, you know, they, 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 they use seed selection and crossbreeding to find, you know, things that have certain attributes, you know, whether it be volume or, uh, width of the blade or what it is that they're, that they're producing or color, you know, they cultivate to, to target that. So they spend a lot of money on seed, seed selection and seed production to make it super efficient and be able to uh, really effective. So that, that benefits their yield and value of the product when it comes out of the water. The other side where they've, where they really spend a lot of time and effort is, uh, product development, uh, branding and marketing. You know, most of the seaweed that we have at Costco and other places comes out of Korea. Um, and, uh, and it's really a, uh, it's really a terrific product. Uh, you know, and I think there, there's a lot of things that we can, we can utilize. One of the things that was also very striking is they have massive abalone production, mm. which they use in their diets all the time. Um, and, uh, the, the South Koreans and there are large farming areas that their sole purpose and they're right adjacent to the abalone farms is to feed the abalone. They harvest it, done on, you know, and, uh, and take it right over and feed the abalone with it. So, so they're, you know, it's a, it's a vertically integrated operation, basically. So their feed, you know, yeah. they, uh, the feed is right there near the abalone. And, and that's a really interesting. Does it make any sense to you to get in the seed business? Um, seeding, uh, you know, seed isn't, uh, I don't know, it's not really a business for us, um, mm-hmm. or for the industry. It's more, uh, you can either sell this itty bitty seed or you, or feet upon feet it, of kelp, right? Yeah. But your, your goal is to produce seed as, as efficiently as po- and consistently as possible. Uh, rarely do you find that seed production is a profitable enterprise in its own right. It's typically just, uh, you know, it's a necessary tool. You need to have seed to produce the, mm-hmm. you know, produce your finished product, whether it be, you know, wheat or barley or, or seaweed. Uh, you've got to produce seed, um, just so that you can grow your, your, you know, whatever your raw, whatever your raw material is. Mm-hmm. Where the value is, is taking that raw material and making something out of it or using that raw material to, uh, that kelp to do derivatives, or in the case of the abalone, you use it for feed. So when you go back to Alaska Monday, what's your main focus? Main focus is getting the uh, seaweed farming, uh, uh, the harvest operation online. Uh, you know, get uh, get that, uh, get our product harvested um, by the. We have about three weeks to finish that up, so we're gonna we're gonna hit it hard, and uh, uh, we've got a 
we got a boat we got to get in the water and get uh, get sea trials on it and get, get it over to the farm. We've got a uh, production line that we reworked uh, um, over the winter that we've got to get hooked up and online, and then we'll start harvesting. Um, and then in the parallel to that, we're in the process of putting in a, a fairly scaled uh, oyster farming operation, and so we'll be uh, building out that structure and and getting that ready to uh, to go into the water. Um, you're not only growing kelp and oysters, you're growing your business quite rapidly. We're it tr- probably seems like forever for you, but as I see it from an outsider in becoming an insider, <laughs> it's uh, going rapidly. We're trying, you know, I mean, that's the, the goal here is to you know, diversify and find a, uh, get a business operation that's going that really is, uh, uh, you know, effective long term and, uh, and, uh, and helps build these communities and the communities that we're in. We really want to, uh, to be, to be part of that community's, uh, uh, economic infrastructure. And I think the potential is, is so, so real and so present. Um, it's really exciting to be part of that. We don't often have opportunities in our lives to change the economic trajectory of a region in a really positive way like we're doing here. Do you ever think of legacy? I do. Um, I would say, you know, it's important to me to do something that matters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, be the change you want to see. Uh, I, um, uh, it, so it's really, a, it's an important part of it, but, um, but it's, only, it's only one part of a, of a larger picture. All right. Thank you for filling this hour of knowledge for me. I really appreciate talking to you, and I always enjoy it. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Seagrove Kelp? No, I uh, I'm just uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you, Tim. And uh, and uh, it is uh, it's really uh, you know these periodic updates. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's great. Let's do it again sometime soon. Yeah, anytime you're on the island, ring me up. All right, sounds uh, great. But uh, bring some kelp pickles because i got to try those. All right. We'll do that. And uh, we'll have a kelp cookout, kelp and oysters, which also uh, yes. which also go very well together. One of the recipes that we did uh, with kelp is we did a, a kelp reduction butter and put it on a half-shell oyster and then roasted it in the, uh, for, uh, for 15 or 20 minutes in the oven. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah, I'm ready for some cookouts, you know, some sunshine. It's It's been crazy cold here this spring for sure it has been it'll be interesting to see in the final result how the cold spring has affected the grow out of the seaweed all right can you tell everybody your website our website uh, that's one change that we've made we've we're now seagrove alaska uh so seagrovealaska.com uh seagrove kelp is part of that and uh, and also seagrove oysters is a uh, is the other part so we'll be uh, seagrove kelp and oysters is uh uh, we'll be coming online this year and we're super excited about it. We've got a great team and we're, uh, we think we expect, uh, uh, tremendous things. When it comes online, can people buy product directly from you or do they have to go to where you've distributed the stuff? The, for the ribbon kelp product, the best way is to go to Pike Place Fish because they can ship and they will ship on uh, the uh, ribbon kelp anywhere in the country. So that's for, for the kelp. For the oysters, uh, those will start coming online next year because it takes about a year and a half for them to grow out to market size. So we're putting them all in the water, but we expect to have our products uh, in the uh, in the new year, uh, probably the middle of 2024. In the interim, we're we're planning to uh, we'll continue our relationship with Hump Island and be uh, selling Hump Island oysters into the marketplace and um, 
there isn't a direct fulfillment, but that's part of our plan. Very cool. Well, say hello to your wife. Enjoy your weekend back on beautiful Bainbridge Island. I hope the sun comes out this weekend for you. And uh, I'll be talking to you again soon. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me in and happy to do it again another time. Yeah, you have an open seat here in the gloom tomb. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be a friend, tell a friend, be kind. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 451 4220.